Welcome to Curated Conversations from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, bringing you the best events each week from the world's number one defense and national security think tank. To explore the hundreds of events we host each year, visit us at CSIS.org. Good evening. Welcome to CSIS. I'm Andrew Schwartz. I'm our Chief Communications Officer. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you all here with us. Um, thanks for coming a little early. We usually do the Schieffer series at 5.30, but I'm starting to think by the size of this crowd, 4.30 might be better. So welcome. Um, it's also, I guess traffic's a little light because we know why. Steve Flanagan is here. That's a really good thing. Welcome, former colleague Steve Flanagan. Um, we couldn't do this series without TCU um, and the Schieffer College of Communication. So we thank them and we thank the Nyarkos Foundation for their generous support. Um, and with that, I'd like to turn it to uh, our CSIS trustee, Bob Schieffer. And I, one other really great fact about Bob Schieffer, who is now celebrating his 50th year at CBS News. Bob? Said I was a reporter for quite a while before I came to work at CBS <laughs> News. That wasn't my first job out of college. But it's been a, uh, it's been a great journey. Uh, I've sort of uh, titled this today, Syria, Afghanistan. Are we in, out, or in between? And I hope we can get closer to the answer to that today. Because the answer is it depends on who you ask and when you ask it, but those kind of details and complications have never stopped us before because that's what we do here at uh, CSIS. We try to sort out complicated things by getting the smartest people we can find, and we found them, and I would say about this group, it's like that uh, insurance commercial on television. They know a lot of things because they've seen a lot of things. This, this is the first, uh, first team here. Dr. John Alterman is author, former State Department official, award-winning Harvard professor where he received his PhD and is a director of the uh, CSIS Mideast program. You have extended biographies of everybody uh, in, in your program, so I'll just introduce them briefly. Alyssa Dalton, here is my left, deputy director of CSIS uh, International Security Programs, has held numerous positions at the Pentagon, was a senior policy advisor to the commander of U.S. forces in Kabul, uh, and a senior intelligence analyst at the Defense Intelligence Agency. Seth Jones, here in the yellow tie, he holds the uh, Harold Brown chair at uh, CSIS. Director of the International Threat. Certainly the use of conventional weapons, uh, even more so in Syria in terms of loss of life, um, has eroded the norms of warfare in terms of targeting hospitals, um, civilian targets, bakeries, um, in, in incredible loss of life um, and threats to civilians. And, and some deep questions in terms of the conduct of, of our own forces and the partners that, that we work with. Um, in, in these situations uh, in, in terms of um, the reliance on, on air power, on the, the reliance on local partners to achieve our, our local security objectives. There are good reasons to use these capabilities, but when we consider a withdrawal that, that is rapid, we need to be thoughtful about how we tie off these engagements responsibly. Um, and I fear that there is not a uh, careful ca calculation being made uh, for, for that in a rapid withdrawal. You know, I, uh, in preparing for this panel, I, I was reading some things written by jo uh, Tony Cordesman, who is just prolific and truly an expert on this part of the world and a lot of other parts of the world as well. And, and he wrote, 
that he went so far as to say, and this is his quote, the president has literally placed the United States in a position where it is losing on all fronts. Now, Seth, you told me before we came out here that you had a rather interesting experience uh, being on uh, C-SPAN the other day where you took questions from the audience. Uh, but that was not the tenor, apparently, that, that the people who were calling you uh, had. Yeah, uh, I, I've obviously written on this subject quite a bit recently and laid out some concerns about what John mentioned earlier, uh, the, how withdrawal was done and the terms under which it was done. I, I wrote an opinion piece in Nancy's paper about a week and a half ago on concerns about the terrorism issue with the withdrawal. But one of the things that struck me in, uh, in the C-SPAN session, and it's one of the call-in shows, it was a morning hour where I had a discussion for the first 15 or 20 minutes, and then the rest of the series was taking calls from Republicans, Democrats, and then independents. Now, probably not entirely a random sampling, but every person that called in, every person that called in was Republican, Democrat, independent was supportive of withdrawal from Syria. Um, and, and, and wondered categorically why we were there, what our strategic interests were, and why we couldn't spend the money that we petitioned. Um, and so I think in that sense, we see a deployment of military forces into the Asia Pacific region. Uh, Iran is sort of interesting. It's, the US has pulled out of the, the nuclear deal. Uh, Iran does represent an area of some competition, but it makes the Syria withdrawal almost ironic because by pulling US forces out the way he has and not negotiating what the terms and conditions are, uh, you know, the, the, the Iranians, now have an ability to move into more vacuums in Syria, uh, particularly now in areas of the east than they had um, in the past. So both the Iranians and the Russians have, uh, ha have the ability to move into the vacuum as the U.S. pulls out. But I think this does reflect a, a Trump policy of what I would call restraint now. Yeah, no, I, just to, to add a couple of points. Um, one, to um, highlight an important observation that my colleague Alice Friend wrote about a couple of weeks ago, which is it, it really is the president's call to decide um, how the military will be deployed around the world. This is civilian control of the military. Where the breakdown occurs, is, as John is highlighting, is in the process of teeing up the, the options, the risks and trade-offs that are inherent in that decision-making. Um, and how to shore up U.S. strategic interests in, in the aftermath and have actually a plan for, for executing uh, the president's decision. So I think that's, that's what we're seeing play out. Um, the, the other piece that, that I would highlight is that um, the, this, this is reflective, I think, not only of the president's um, global viewpoint, but it is broader than that. If you look at recent uh, public opinion polling by, by the Pew um, it, organization, about half of Americans don't believe that um, America has achieved its strategic objectives in Afghanistan. It's also about half that believe um, that, that we should be pulling out of Syria. So I think there is an active conversation to be had in the US um, and perhaps looking forward to to future election cycles in terms of the, the future course of, of a foreign policy, the role of the US military in achieving 
our foreign policy objectives, I would like to see um, a defense policy in the region that does recalibrate the use of, of military force and actually right sets the other tool sets uh, at the disposal of the United States, our, our diplomatic, our economic levers that are incredibly powerful and arguably more in need in, in this region. I, I, the part that bothers me is I'm beginning to wonder, does anybody know what our policy is? And when we don't know what the policy of the United States is, the rest of the world, I think that puts us in a more dangerous position. In fact, I think that's the most dangerous position one can be in when people don't know what the United States stands for, what we were prepared to do, uh, when we're prepared to do it, and, and under, under what circumstances. So I think it's a great question, and it really gets at something we haven't experienced, and, and, and other panelists have talked about this. In the past, you'd have a principals meeting, and there'd be private deliberations of all the possible options, and what the costs were associated with it, what would be the best option, and then an announcement would be made, this is how the US is gonna proceed going forward. And right now you have the opposite, where the sort of end state is announced first, and then we are sort of publicly seeing the deliberations happen, right? And so in the case of Syria, you'll hear the U.S. is withdrawing in 30 days or 60 days, or there's not a date, or it's only going to leave when, ISIS, when Iran's been contained and ISIS is completely um, defeated. So for me as a military correspondent, the thing that I turn to is those things that get outside of rhetoric. And, so in the case of Syria, there's a document that the Pentagon produces. It's called an execution order. And of course, there has to be an acronym for it, an exhort. And that actually spells out the US mission, military mission, in Syria. And so I think when searching for what the policy is, you have to, I think, for those following, get around the rhetoric and try to get those concrete things. It's why you've heard General Miller in Afghanistan and General Neller, the commandant when he was there, saying, we don't have any orders to change anything. What they're turning to is sort of tangible, descriptions of the policy because this sort of swirl of public rhetoric has created confusion. I think for all of you who are, who are astute observers of these topics, I think those are the sort of anchors you look for because I think if you keep following the rhetoric, you're basically following an internal deliberation playing out publicly. Um, go ahead. Sir. I was just going to say the other area where, where the rhetoric has, I think, been problematic is statements by some policymakers, including this week, that, the, the, that one of the rationales for withdrawing forces from Syria is that the Islamic State has been defeated, or even that the, 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 the caliphate has been defeated. And I think one has to look very carefully at the evidence that we have. Um, we put out a report here at CSIS back in November and found that the largest numbers of both Salafi jihadist groups, includes the Islamic State, and the largest number of fighters anywhere in the world is still in Syria right now. That the Islamic State has not been defeated they continue to conduct attacks, as we recently saw in Manbij. And by the way, on the uh, western part of Syria, in the Idlib area, we have the largest uh, concentration of al-Qaeda-linked fighters anywhere in the globe right now, uh, operating under the group Hayat Tahrir al-Sham. So uh, it, it is disingenuous to argue that a reason we should leave is because we have defeated the Islamic State when the reality on the ground, I think anybody who's looked at the terrorism picture in Syria would say uh, that while ISIS has lost virtually all the territory it once controlled, it still has large numbers of operatives involved in 
guerrilla attacks, clandestine operations, and is in the process of attempting to recreate it. So um, I think the, the facts are important rather than just the rhetoric here. Do you agree with that, Melissa? Yes, um, I, I would agree with, with that assessment. And I think it, it's equally important to think about um, you know, the need to sustain capabilities in the region, if not in Syria, then you know, in, the, in the perimeter countries, as Nancy was describing, to address those challenges with our partners. But then also, what is the other side of the equation? How do we get ourselves out of this cycle of perpetually fighting counterterrorism operations for, for decades? It's, it's the stabilization piece. It's those other tools of, of statecraft that empower local partners to um, establish local governance on their own terms and in ways that can connect to a broader political process. And that's the areas that we are continuing to fail to invest in um, that we really need to up our game. You know, I, th I thought it was interesting, uh, and you saw it again when Mattis left, when, uh, and I don't say this to promote my own interview, uh, but when I interviewed Rex Tillerson, uh, and I asked him, I asked him two just, you know, very open questions. Uh, how would you describe Donald Trump was the first one, and the other one was, when did your relationship go off the rails? And when I asked him about that, he said, I think he, he, I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he said, I think basically he just got tired of me telling him he couldn't do things. Said he would propose things and I would say, you know, if you want me to go up on the hill and, and uh, advocate for that and so forth, I can do that. But Mr. President, you can't do that. That's illegal. And he said, I think he just got tired of me being the one who kept telling him that. And, uh, when I had asked him in the beginning how would he describe uh, the president, he said, well, he doesn't read, uh, he's uninformed, uh, he will not take a briefing, and he's not very interested in much more in what people have to say to him, which uh, I thought was pretty astonishing. But then, you know, a couple of weeks after that, the Syria thing happens and Mattis leaves. Uh, and if you look at what his letter said, it basically said the same the same thing, and now you've got the chief of staff who's gone, and if you go back and look at some of the things he said and what they're now quoting him, uh, sources are, who know him, are saying, it sounds like it all comes down to that. He does not like to be challenged, and when he makes up his mind, uh, that's the way he sees it, and he's not going to be dissuaded from it, but I, I, I just, I, I I don't know why, maybe it just because no one ever quotes him, but I, when all of this happens, I, I keep going back to Martin Van Buren. I mean, you don't hear many people quote Martin Van Buren. <laughs> who, the fact was, he was, you know, he was uh, Andrew Jackson's vice president, and he was uh, a master uh, politician. But he said at one point that government should not be operated uh, based on the excitement of the moment, but on sound and sober second thought. And I, I think that's one of the things that may be missing here now, but that's just my opinion clearly underlined. Yeah, I, I think what you're getting at is, is it feels to me like the president is fairly separated from his government. And maybe that's natural because the president didn't come up from, through government. He hasn't been engaged in these processes, but, but when I read about the way the White House works, there's a way in which the president is normally deeply engaged and pushes people and 
pushes things back, but it's a give and take where the president is totally enmeshed in the machinery of government. And two years in, the president seems to, to, to uh, strain against the, 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 the machinery of government and say, but I think this is what it should be. But the government doesn't work that way. The government doesn't work on big, broad pronouncements. The government works on, okay, so these are the 17 things and the eight subpoints and, and going down and down and down and with an up and down, which the president seems rather pointedly divorced from. And that, and the, I think, and the, and the historic question is whether the job of being president has changed such that we're gonna have more presidents who haven't come out of government whose approach is that, or whether this is just an anomalous president. And it's frankly too early to tell. But what, what, one thing we're missing, and I think when we look at historical administrations that take momentous steps, whether it's introducing uh, U.S. forces or aid packages the way we had after World War II when Truman introduces the Truman Doctrine and the Marshall Plan, uh, or any other periods like that in American history, even when we're withdrawing, is, is the, the president uses venues, whether it's national television or major speeches, to outline the vision and the broader doctrine that is behind his decisions to put, and what, what, what we lack right now is we have to sort of guess what restraint looks like and what a policy of restraint looks like. What we don't have is a clearly articulated policy where we can, we don't have to agree with it, but we understand why he believes we're withdrawing, we should withdraw from, from Syria and downsize in Afghanistan. That we understand the, the vision, we understand the doctrine, and that these are steps that flow logically from that. That we're missing right now, and I think that we've seen in, I think, in a number of past presidents that have had to make these momentous decisions. But they've Nancy. often had a team Let, around uh, Nancy them. wanted to say one thing. Well, I, I'm just going to offer a contrarian view, just for the purposes of discussion, also because it's something <laughs> you hear um, from sources around, uh, around the topic of Syria. When the United States entered Syria in 2014, the policymakers then never answered the question of what would the U.S. exit look like. It, they never answered. Right, that never answered either, and, and it was clear from the beginning it was going to go one of two ways. Either the U.S. would in some way abandon the Kurds or would be there in perpetuity. This was something that came up under the Obama administration, again, under the Trump administration. And this president was clear that he wanted to get out of Syria. He announced it as, as far back as April of last year. And I think one of the takeaways, and again, this is just a contrarian view that you hear, is that one of the responsibilities of the military and policymakers who put forward these ideas is to answer the question of how to get out. Because I think the argument you hear is by not doing so, you leave the, the, the strategy of Syria vulnerable to, uh, to a president who has said, I want out. And so, and again, this is, I'm not sharing a political view. I really want to just get it, I want to just sort of challenge yeah. how we think about these issues because you heard from the viewers on C-SPAN and from others this, this exhaustion with these wars. And I think part of it is that there's been a failure to really answer um, how these conflicts end, what a resolution looks like, what does an end state look like. The open-endedness of it, of both Syria and Afghanistan, arguably has, have left both strategies vulnerable. I think that's, those are very good points, right, no, John? And, and I'm not arguing with you the yeah, president's yeah. prerogative or even, sure. you know, you can argue about the justice of being in Syria, pulling out of Syria. You can argue that. 
I think the, the president is not well served by not having, not surrounding himself with trusted advisors who understand the levers of government and can lash him in to the government. And I think as a consequence, he feels more constrained and the government either ignores him, and I think we have a lot of evidence of the government sometimes ignoring him, or not understanding where he's trying to go. And it seems to me there is that ring of advisors, and it's partly the chief of staff, but it's others who, I mean, the, the Michael Devers and the Jim Bakers and the other people who have been key to making administrations work. And this administration doesn't have somebody like that. You could say it's Jared Kushner, but frankly, Jared Kushner doesn't understand enough about the way government works to play that role effectively. Well, you know, I have never thought trying to, and I spent a lot of years, I've spent 15 years covering Congress, and I was up on Capitol Hill. And in the offices where the congressmen, and they would all do it just so they could make the extra money, where they would make their, their wife the chief of staff, you know, it never worked. It, it never worked because the staff can't go to the guy's wife and say, he's really screwed up here. We've got to get this straightened out. And by, it, just, it just doesn't work. And, and I don't see that as a great strength. I mean, the man's welcome to have who he wants on his staff. That's one of his prerogatives as president. But bringing the kids in, I mean, it's, it's not the corner store, you know. It's, it's a little different than that. I mean, I, 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 I always, one of the questions I always ask uh, uh, people is, you know, you hear so many people who say if they, in, down in Texas where I come from, they pronounce it a business, not a business. But they say, you know, if they'd run it, run the government like a business, everything would be fine. Well, it's not a business, and it won't be fine. And others have tried that, and it never, it never, it never quite works out. But uh, I think we ought to, uh, before we go to questions from the audience, ought to talk a little bit more about Afghanistan. How, how is Melissa? How is Afghanistan different from Syria, or is it? Yeah, no, I mean, I think with Afghanistan, it's, it's, it's a much longer commitment um, that the United States has made there. Um, it's with NATO um, and a broader coalition. Um, it's linked to 9-11 in terms of our immediate response in the aftermath of that and the Article 5 NATO invocation um, to, to respond to that. So there's a lot of political, strategic, emotional baggage uh, that I think uh, is subscribed to the Afghanistan question. And then there are the concrete realities of here we are 17 years in, um, the Taliban still presents a pretty significant threat to the stability of Afghanistan. And likely will, will go in. And from what I see, Russia has a very good stronghold in that region. Okay. And I want to ask the opinions of I understand. the panel. Have at it, panel. Who wants to answer that? Uh, okay, I guess I'll, I'll start uh, since it was my question. Um, I mean, in, it's probably slightly less of an issue in Afghanistan and more right now in, in Syria. Uh, I, I think what we're seeing is a, is a more active Russia in Syria. It's, it's getting itself involved in the refugee return discussions. It's now got power projection capabilities that it didn't have uh, before 2015. It's got a, a access and more ships at, the, at uh, Tartus. It's got uh, more fighter jets and bombers in and around Latakia. Uh, so 
Uh, it's the one, as we've discussed earlier, that's uh, in part been um, discussing with the Iranians on one side and the Israelis on the other and trying to mediate that dispute and keep the, the conflict to a, a limited level. On a recent trip that John and I were in Lebanon, we had a, a senior uh, Lebanese official tell me that the Russians were now you know, a major power in the Middle East in, in ways that have outstripped the U.S. presence. So that's the downside of leaving is uh, the Russians become a more active military power in the region and a more important diplomatic and intelligence power in the region. Okay, uh, John, did you want to say? 30 seconds. I think the Russians always have much lower ambitions than the United States. The U.S. is trying to create systems and processes and, and you know, create dynamics and all those things. And the Russians, oftentimes, they'll prop something up. They'll try to eliminate a group. They're not looking to do what the U.S. does. And I, you know, I, I'm constantly struck that in Syria, you had a three-country coalition beat a 65-country coalition, which the U.S. helped lead. And it was partly because they were looking to do so much less. Melissa. Yeah, and I think just to, to build upon John's point, I think it's also important to moderate our expectations of what Russia can do, whether it's in Syria or more broadly in the region, because of their own capacity issues, their own political and economic constraints at, at home. Um, that, that can serve as a check. That said, I think it is concerning to the United States strategically, politically, and certainly wearing my defense hat in terms of us, the United States, having to second guess um, our ability to, to operate in the region, um, to rely upon certain allies and partners in the ways that I think we have grown quite comfortable um, and maybe com 